2 today. So if you'll take your Bibles and go there. It's quite a long passage. Um, It is a sermon unto itself. It is Peter's sermon right after Pentecost. And remember before Pentecost, Peter was a scary cat. He was a blowhard and then he was running away. And when a servant girl says, aren't you one of those? He says, no, no, not me. I'm not a follower of Christ. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And Peter gives a sermon, and at the end of that sermon, thousands come into the church. Thousands are added to the church. Now, you, you, uh, in the past couple of weeks, we've heard Dan talk about Jonah and that great seven or eight word sermon, um, which you know, I think I could remember Jonah's sermon, uh, something, but judge, judgment's coming. What was it? Forty days and Nineveh will be, Nineveh will be destroyed. I mean, that's a powerful one, isn't it? That'll sell on TV. Uh, you, you put a good suit on somebody and have them preach that one for three days walking around, that, not really. But yet it was the power of God that changed an entire city. It didn't change the next generation, but it changed the entire city there. We come to second chapter of Acts and we look at Paul's message. Now, before we read this, I want to give a, a little caveat here. This, uh, we're focusing on Peter's approach to evangelism as we have been looking at different ways of evangelism, different ways it's played out. This is a confrontational approach. I can't tell you when to be confrontational and when not to. That has to be one of those things that you work out in your own personality and your own situation. Uh, but there are places and applications when it is appropriate to get into somebody's face and confront them with the truth of the gospel. We're going to see an illustration of that here in Acts chapter 2. So if you're able, would you stand with me? And we'll prepare to read the word of the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come upon us and give us understanding as to what this passage says, not just the words on the page, Lord, but penetrate our hearts and minds with it so that we understand how it is we are to live this out, how we are to apply it, that we might see you at work. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verse 14 all the way through 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams." Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, 
a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. You want to keep that open? We're going to go to a couple other spots this morning uh, as we look at what the the Lord has for us. Now, between my uh, freshman and sophomore years at college... I had my one and only foyer into door-to-door salesmanship. Anybody else ever sell something door-to-door? Okay. It's hard. Even when you have a good product. Now, I'm going to tell you my product. Cutco knives. How many of you have Cutco knives? Oh, see, I mean, if there's an amputation that needs done at your house, one of those will do it. Okay. I I can still remember everything. and, And just as an aside... Uh, Cutco is not sponsoring me to say this. Okay? Uh, you can always send your knives back to be sharpened, and they'll send them back. And, and when my mother passed away, she had a drawer full of Cutco knives, and her philosophy was, if it's sharp, it will cut me. All right? So you can understand, her knives, she's just sawing away. On this. So we sent them all back, and they all came back. Even the handles were polished. Okay, and she had to cut her hand right off with those new knives. And we sent one back just recently, 
and they wrote a little note, this knife was too far gone, so we sent you a new one. Oh, now, see, okay, now you're thinking, oh, I want some Cutco knives. Okay. They're not inexpensive. They're not inexpensive. Um, but one of the training things, all that says, one of the training things that we did in our, our training was we were paired up with somebody who was just, just like I was, and we were to sell our product to that person. Now, the person I was paired up with this was this just very nice young girl. And the thing was, we were selling at the same time. Okay? So who was going to be louder, who was going to be for, more forceful, was the one who was going to win. That was the whole point of it. And, you know, I, I could be kind of loud. And she finally just gave up and sat there. Because I just was like, I'm going to go buy this knife. And then, oh my God. Now, in the real world, she would not have purchased a knife for me. Because I just ran her right over with my product and just was in her face. And, and she would have said, thanks, get out of my house. This is the way it would have been. Confrontation. Now, most people don't like it. In fact, most people kind of shy away from confrontation. And we would just rather not get into somebody's face over almost any issue. Even things that we're excited about. Now, I know this doesn't apply to Auburn and Alabama. <laughs> Fans, okay, uh, fans. Most of the world disagrees with our view of salvation. Okay, this is the way it is. Most of the world does not think it is by Christ alone. Most of the world thinks it is one of those things that, well, if I'm good enough or uh, God will work it out in the end and, and there are many ways to heaven and we say, no, there's not. There's only one way and it is Christ and Christ alone. Most of the world knows that God exists. You know, may not know about Christ, but most of the world knows that God exists. I'm going to tell you a story here from R.C. Sproul, and my Sunday school class has, has heard this before, but this is an example of that. R.C. Sproul, in one of his books, said, I can remember being invited to speak and give the case for the existence of God on a college campus to the Atheist Club. Okay? Now, Right away, inviting R.C. Sproul to an atheist club, that's their mistake. Okay? The intellectual power there was great, and they were going to get smashed, but they didn't know it. So I went through a defense of theism. I also went back to the passage in Romans chapter 1, 18 to 23. Okay? And he said, I'm happy to discuss with you all the intellectual questions that are involved in trying to prove and demonstrate the existence of God. However, I want to put my cards on the table, he said, right up in front and tell you that in light of what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 1, you already know very well that God exists. The problem is you hate the God that exists. Well, he says a little bit later, he says they were apoplectic. Okay, they just went wild. He said, what do you mean we know God exists and we hate the God exists? And he said, that's what Paul says here. He says, all you have to do is look at creation and you can tell a God exists and you are what? Without excuse. And you know that in your heart. The issue is you hate that God that exists. Continue with, with Sproul. Romans 1, he makes it clear that God has revealed himself through the creation of every human being and that this revelation is not obscure. In the Greek, it is phaneris. In the Latin, it is manifestum. It is manifest. It is clear that God exists from his creation. 
He says, being reformed, I believe that regardless of all the rational defense that I can give, even if I can give a perfect, compelling, irrefutable argument that my knives are better than yours, okay, or that God exists, he says, unless the Holy Spirit accompanies that argument and changes the heart, that person will never agree in that argument. They will never submit and they will never believe. So let's understand. You can have the best, you can have the tightest, you can have the most coherent argument for the existence of God, that salvation lay only in Christ Jesus, that the scriptures are true and valid, but without the movement of the Holy Spirit, in the life of those who hear it, there will be no salvation. There will be no agreement to these things. So you think, well, is, is it important then to have a good argument if it's not going to win? Well, yes, it is important to have a good argument. It helps us understand what we are talking about, what we are arguing about, how clear these truths are in creation and here in God's word. But a solid argument won't change your mind. How, just think, how many of you have argued with somebody who did not believe? And perhaps you were confrontational. Perhaps you were argumentative. Perhaps you were convinced that you had crushed their pitiful argument. And that was the last time you ever spoke. Mm. Or that was the last time you ever spoke about spiritual things. There's a time for confrontation and a time for the slow process. Charles Spurgeon helps us understand this. He writes, It is idle to attempt to heal those who are not wounded, to attempt to clothe those who have never been stripped, and to make those rich who have never realized their poverty. So to put that into today's language, why do I need saving if I don't believe I have a problem with sin? Why do I care about eternity if I think my existence is going to end up there at Maple Hill? Why do I care about Christ and holiness if I don't believe in the judgment of a righteous and perfect God that will lead me either to eternal life or eternal death? I don't believe that stuff. Why do I care? Now, with these things in mind, how and when do we take Peter's approach as laid out for us in Acts chapter 2 and brazenly confront the non-believer? I mean, when do we really lay it out and get in their face? Not, not, I'm not saying we've got to get right up in their face real close, but when do we become, in a sense, offensive to them? Now, I understand the gospel is offensive. The gospel is offensive because darkness hates the light. If I come to your house at 3 in the morning with one of those powerful flashlights and shine it right in your eyes, and you're, you're going to hate me. Darkness hates the light. When we bring the light of Christ to the world, we have to understand they will not like it. Only when the Holy Spirit accompanies that will there be a change. I mean, I, it's clear I have been offensive in the past. I will probably be offensive in the future. But Scripture is clear. We are to live at peace with all men, if as far as it is possible with me. That I am to be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within with what? Gentleness and respect. But sometimes, you just have to tell them the facts. And you've got to tell them the facts, and they're going to hate you for it. They're going to hate you for it, or the Lord may change their lives. Now, alongside of that is the 
kind of as a, as a tangent alongside of that is the believer who is living in sin or clearly disobedience to God. And you think, well, I'm supposed to admonish them. I'm supposed to come and put my arm around them and help lead them back into the truth. But what if they don't want to do that? You may have to get in their face. You may have to be in conflict with them and confrontation with them and hold out the fact that your life is in sin. Your life is in disobedience. Your philosophy is not scriptural. Your ethics are not scriptural. Your morals are not scriptural, but yet you claim to be a Christian. How can that be? Who? Oh. You know, and then you just leave it. It's like sales. The next one to talk loses. Okay? You just leave it there with them. But this is what I believe. Because, you know, this is what the world believes. This is the trend today, and I have to hold to it. Because I can see the wisdom there that, that the world is right about this. Or if I'm going to succeed in this world, I've got to take on some of their philosophies. Or, you know what? I just think this is right. Yeah, I know what it says here. But that just doesn't work for me. There is certainly a long list of ethical and moral positions that the world holds, the world says is true, that are counter to the biblical mandates. I mean, it's not even close. The, the world is really, takes a lot of things, and, and you remember, just because things are legal, just because things are popular, does not make them scriptural. And often they are the norm in society, and they, sometimes they're the norm in the church. That's really frightening. Yet people who confess Christ as their Lord and Savior often side with the world. And those who take those anti-biblical stances in their ethics and their morals, if they don't know what God's word says, we need to point them to it. If they do know what God's word says, they're doing it because they want to. They want to be disobedient to God. So let's return to our understanding of evangelism as Peter lays it out here. Now, the senator, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, said famously, you are entitled to your own opinion, but you are not entitled to your own facts. Okay? Entitled to your own opinion, not your own facts. Facts are facts. And Peter is going to lay out for this crowd the facts of the resurrection. Okay? So let's look at chapter 2, verses 22. And he's going to give attestation to these things. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. He said, we, we know that he was at least with God and was of God. Why do we know that? Through what mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst. You are without excuse here. You saw that withered hand be made right. You saw the lame get up. You saw the blind man return, have his sight returned in an instant. You have seen many, many acts. Remember what John says towards the end? If I were to list all the things that Jesus did, it would take many more books to fill them up. This Jesus. Now, now he does that for emphasis. Okay, they're already talking about Jesus. And then he goes... This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. I think, uh, 
But, but didn't the Jews kill him? Didn't the Romans kill him? Well, the Jewish leaders argued for that, and the Romans carried it out. But what really was the plan there? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, if we look at it historically, the Jews have been blamed for the death of Christ. Messiah killers, I mean, all kinds of bad names, in, inappropriately, okay, inappropriately. And because of that, that mistake throughout the, the many years and in many different places, they have faced persecution, wrongly so. Why? It was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. They were, they and the Romans, the Romans were actually the ones who did it, they were responsible for their own actions, yet it was the Lord who carried it out. In fact, Isaiah tells us, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, and when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. So from before the foundation of the earth, before the creation, it was God's plan that Christ is going to go to the cross. For what reason? To pay for my sin. My sin. Just think about that for a moment. A God who has all power and all authority and all righteousness and all holiness knows my name. Knows the hair on my head. Knows the words I'm going to speak. And he cares for me more than I can imagine. And that is manifest in the fact that he sent his son and his son gave his life while I was in that sin. While my heart was filthy, while all I wanted was what Randy wanted. And yet he came for me and gave his life for me. The perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Jesus gave his life to atone for the sin of all those who the Father would call. In accordance with his sovereign will. The Lord uses the evil desires of men to carry out his plan, but it is his plan. If you have your Bibles open, turn over to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. Now remember, Jesus, or Peter is speaking to the men of Judea, the men of Israel. He uses both of those terms. And we're reminded of this parable that Jesus taught back here in Matthew Matthew 21, verse 33. Now, in in context, Jesus has already come to Jerusalem. We've gone through Palm Sunday. This is his last few days on earth. Verse 33, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those tenants? And they said to him, this was to be the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders there. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death 
and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in the season. And Jesus said to them, have you never read the scripture? The stones that the builders reject, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when he falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. See, the gospel has come. And they killed the prophets. And the gospel has come. And this is prophetic. They're going to kill the son. Okay. Why? Why has he done this? Mm. Remember, this is the men of Judea. Peter's not only talking about the things that Jesus has done supernaturally. He's also going back and talking about their prophecies from Joel, their prophecies from Psalm 16, from Psalm 110. He's already told them about this in the parable. This is nothing, this is not a surprise to them. This has happened according to the predetermined and foreknowledge of our Heavenly Father. This is the plan that the Lord is working out. This is what God has intended. In fact, Psalm 16 makes it very clear. There are two points there. Peter's spending nine verses talking about the resurrection of Christ. Nine verses about the resurrection of Christ. Why? Because he wants to make sure that they understand this is a fact. This has been attested to. Hundreds of witnesses saw Christ. So the first part of Psalm that we read earlier today in in Psalm 16 is about the declaration that Christ will not abandon, that, that God will not abandon our souls to Sheol, to Hades, nor will his son see decay. And he says, you know, I could show you where David's bones are if you really want, but I, I can't show you where Christ's bones are. He didn't face decay. He didn't face the, the terribleness of, that our bodies will. In fact, he walked out of that tomb and God has raised him. And, and, and now he's putting out all of this evidence right there for them. Just like in the parable here, he says, you know what? You knew what was true, but yet you didn't follow through. You knew what was true from the prophets, but you didn't believe. You knew what was true and you again didn't believe and now God has sent his son to you what will you do with that will you believe and the issue really here is the gospel has been moved from the Jews to the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous Romans chapter 11 to make the Jews jealous that why did God move from us over to this crowd I mean Remember the prayer of a, a Jewish man in the morning? God, I'm thankful I'm not a, a, a um, oh, I can only think of the two, sorry, a, a Gentile or a woman or a slave. There we go. I think, because Gentiles were dogs, the lowest, and yet the gospel has come to us. Why? To make them jealous. I encourage you to read Romans chapter 11 
later today. So Peter is getting in their face. He is making it clear, back to Acts chapter 2, making it clear, you did it. You did it according to the plan of our Heavenly Father. This is not a mistake. This wasn't planned. You are guilty of these things nonetheless. And, and the cry here in verse 37. What shall we do? Peter confronted them in a very un, uncomfortable way. Do you like to go to somebody and tell them when they're really wrong? Do you like to tell somebody in a way that, you know, I'm trying to be gentle here, but, but you're way out of line. Okay, those are uncomfortable times. And we hope that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we'll get back on the, back on the path that is right. But here Peter has confronted them with what the Lord said from their prophets. They already knew these things. They already had heard these things. What shall we do? Repent. That's a straight thing. Repent and be baptized. That is the call. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. You know, if Peter only had a smoke machine or some laser lights or 40 choruses of Just As I Am, he'd have gotten more than 3,000, right? It was just the hard preaching of the truth. No sugarcoating. There's no velvet on the brick that Peter hits these guys with. It is right across the head. And what do they do? They are cut to the heart. Why? Because Peter's argument was so good. He was true. He was biblical. But what had happened in the previous chapter? The Holy Spirit had come. And the Holy Spirit came upon these 3,000 and their lives were changed. John Chrysostom, who was known as the Golden Mouth as a preacher back in the early church fathers, said, see Peter's boldness and his great freedom of speech. Why was Peter free to say such things? Because they're true. Because the facts are true and because they are biblical. That's why he could say such things with such boldness. Now, Scripture is inspired. It is the word of God. It is the power of God unto salvation. But that does not give me license to be personally offensive in my presentation of it. Okay. Now, maybe some of you have met some of those people. Okay. Ever, ever been somewhere and somebody came down next and sat next to you you didn't know, and they turned to you and said, are you saved? I, I've seen that. Uh, I was in uh, a, a bus station in uh, Helsinki with a group of students, and we're sitting on a bench, and this a Finnish guy came down right next to this girl I was sitting next to and looked at her and said, are you saved? You know what she did? She was Jewish. She got up and went, ah, 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 went and got the police. Okay? <laughs> we are not called to be personally offensive. The gospel is offensive. Sometimes we have to present it straightforward and without any sugarcoating, without any velvet on the brick, it has to come right that way because the light of the world, the light of the gospel of Christ shines into the darkness and people will hate it. 
The word of God shows us that we should never be afraid to declare the truth of the gospel. It shows us that our own salvation is evidence of its truth. It shows us the change that we see in so many other lives testifies to the power of God in the forgiveness of sins. It shows us that we need fear no man, only our Heavenly Father. We fear no trend in society. I'm afraid of being outside the bounds of society. You are already outside the bounds of society by being a Christian. We fear no government. The only truly safe place in this world is in the arms of Christ. And if you are not there today, you need to be there today. Because his arms will never let you go. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as, as we come to you, these, these words are true, these words are hard. Perhaps we needed a little whack with a brick today. Perhaps we needed the straight and undiluted facts that there is salvation only in Christ. That it was your will to crush him for us. That all of creation speaks to your existence. But it is Christ himself who speaks of your love for us. Christ himself who speaks of salvation. The work of Christ speaks to our only opportunity to have our sins cleansed and to stand in your presence, not clothed in our own righteousness, not by our own merit, not because I have crossed off, dotted my I's and crossed my T's, but because I stand in Christ. That's the finished work. Today, Lord, move in our hearts, I would pray. If there are those who do not stand in Christ today, they would, their eyes would be open to that. That they would repent and believe that Jesus is Lord. And that their lives, too, would be forever changed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.